In this episode of Desert Island Horror, we have the Zuchut of speaking to Dr. Hannah Tannenbaum. Hannah lectures at Baradan University, Mikhlelet Herzog and Matan. She has worked as a Jewish educator in teaching and administration for more than 30 years. She earned her doctorate at Yeshiva University and was the recipient of the Bommel Award as the most outstanding faculty member at Yeshiva University. Thank you so much, Hana, for joining us today. It's a real good to have you with us. Now, thank you for inviting me, and thank you so much for that fascinating question. I've been preoccupied with it for weeks, just the idea of trying to choose only three um, sections that I would take with me to a desert island. So instead, I really answered the question, of three sources that I find to be fascinating, that I find to be inspiring, and that I thought that I would like to share that are perhaps a little bit off the beaten track. So the first source that I chose is actually chapter two in the book of Yehoshua. Now the book of Yehoshua opens up with Hashem telling Yehoshua not to be afraid because he is the new leader after Moshe. And then the very, very first action that Yehoshua does, even during the Shiva of Moshe, is he sends out spies. And when you look at chapter two, you see that the spies rarely weren't very successful spies because they get to Yericho and within moments, they are discovered by the king and are saved by Rahab and they immediately have to leave. So we sort of have to ask ourselves if Yoshua, who'd been one of those original spies and knew how badly it had backfired, what was he possibly thinking about sending spies a second time? Especially that this is the very first thing that he is doing. And what I want to suggest is that this chapter in Tanakh is not really a spy story. There's really something else going on here. Now, these unnamed spies arrive in the house of Rahab, and they go there primarily because it's probably, first of all, it's easy to get to because she lives in the wall. And secondly, it's a place where there is no suspicion. And it's a place where you might be able to pick up information. And it's a place that you could probably make a quick escape if necessary. And the verse just tells us they arrive, and all of a sudden, the king is asking Rahab to turn them over. Now, we need to ask ourselves, how is it that they were discovered so quickly? So on one hand, you could say, well, it was just high alert, and any stranger automatically came to the king. Or perhaps we want to say that it was Rahab herself who called the king. Now, how can I prove that? Because the king's men then come to her door. Now, any good policeman, when you say to him, there's nobody in the house, is going to search the house anyway. Why doesn't the king search the house here? So it must be that the king, that she was the one who told the king. So since she told the king, he believes her when she says there is nobody there. And therefore, also, the Gemara tells us that he must have had some sort of relationship with her. Now, she takes a risk by hiding the spies and lying to the king. Had he checked the house, he would have found them, and that would have been the end. Um, she has no loyalty, and perhaps that's why she's described as a prostitute, because a, loyal, a prostitute has no loyalty to any man, and she has no loyalty to her town. But she tells the spies that she has seen the miracles that God has done of the splitting of the sea, 
and the capture of the Amorite kings, and she uses that as an existence for the proof of God, and she chooses to throw her lot in with the Jewish people. And just as she saves the spies, she asks that her family has been saved. And perhaps this is why she manipulated the situation to have to need so that the spies to have to, she has to save them so that she herself can be um, saved. The spies tell Rachav to hang a red string on her window as a sign to protect the house, similar to the blood on the doorposts in Egypt. The red also reminds us of what we call the red light district on one hand, but the also the red string would turn white when the Jews repented on Yom Kippur. And for the most part, biblical uh, Gentiles are usually portrayed in a very negative light, either because of their idolatry or because of their treatment of Israel. But Rahab is actually portrayed quite favorably. The Gemara in Megillah 15a tells us that Rahab was one of the four most beautiful women that ever lived, Sarah, Rahab, Abigail, and Esther. I want to suggest that what the beauty here, the Gemara talking about, are these women all give advice to men, and the men listen and benefit from that advice. The Gemara in Zvachim on 116a tells us that all of the um, king horses and all the king's men all used to visit Rachav, and she was 10 years old when the Jews left Egypt, and she was involved in this immorality the entire 40 years that the Jews wandered in the wilderness. And when the Jews enter Israel, she goes through this conversion. Rahav is the very first person we meet in the promised land. The promised land can be very enticing. The expansiveness, Rahav comes from the word expanse, is just from her name, stands in contrast to Mitzrayim, which is the narrow place that the Jews escaped from. A hint that sometime that there is some sort of transformation that's going to take place. The children of Israel were not in the same place as they'd been 40 years earlier, and the world was no longer in the same place. And in order for the for the in order for Rachav to save the spies, she uses three items. She uses the flax that she hides them in, the window that she lets them out of, and the rope that they use to go down. And according to Rashi, she thus proclaimed, Master of the universe. By these very things I have transgressed, let me now achieve absolution by them. In other words, by aiding the escape of the spies, Rashi understands that Rachav has decided to alter the fundamental trajectory of her life, to abandon Yericho and all its sin, and to accept Israel and its God. The highest form of repentance is through using and elevating the tools that you used for previous sin. And Rachav teaches that human beings can use the exact tools of their failure in order to anchor themselves closer to Hashem and merit acceptance into Klal Yisrael. The pasuk that we say, Lo tatu on that pasuk Rashi tells us that in order to sin, there are three stages. Ayin roeh, the eye sees, halev chomeid, the heart desires, v'haguf, oset hamaseh, but the body does the action. These three ideas can be found really in the um, stages that she's doing. We have the ayin roeh, sees is obviously the window. 
Halev homemade is the flax, because just like the heart in and of itself, you can't do anything with, the flax also has to be made into something else. And the guf, oseh refers to the rope because that's what allowed them to do the action. Or you could say that those three things represent the three mitzvot of women specifically. The ayin represents the light, the candle. The guf, the body, represents the taharat mishpacha. And the flax, which is something that grows in the ground and you make things out of, represents challah. And so, indeed, we discover that when Yericho is attacked, Rachav is saved, and she lives, it says, Bekerev Am Yisrael, and that she actually converts Rachav, and she actually marries Yehoshua. They only have daughters, but their descendants include eight prophets, including Nerya, Baruch ben Nerya, Yirmiyahu, and Huldah. So the story of Rachav is not a story of spying, but it's really a story of repentance. And every person is capable of changing the direction of his or her life by willfully choosing a different moral path. The opportunity for such a transformation may not be as striking as the one presented to Rachav, but neither are the circumstances typically so stark, nor the immediate consequences so severe. I want to end this uh, section with the Pesikta Rabbatai, who tells us that when God will judge the world, he will minister judgment on the people. And what does it mean? Rabbi Eliezer says, God will judge the nations for the uprightness they possessed. For example, Rachav, Yitro, and Ruth. How will he speak to the nations of the world? He will say, why did you not bring yourself closer to me? And the people will say, but we were utterly evil people. We were embarrassed. And God will say to them, were you worse than Rachav, whose city was in the city wall and she received robbers and prostitutes with them? Nevertheless, she drew close to me and, and didn't I welcome her and raise up prophets and righteous people from her? And once you look at this chapter and you see that it's not only um, the spying, but you also see that not only does Rachav do tshuva here, but the nation does tshuva as well. Here again, they're in a situation where they're sending spies, but this time the report comes back positive rather than negative. And this perhaps is why this chapter is chosen as the Haftorah for Parshat Shlach, that this perek is the tikkun for Chet HaMaraglim, Yoshua does not question whether Am Yisrael should enter Eretz Yisrael, but rather how this can best be accomplished. And the spies discover that the morale of the local inhabitants is low and that they are beginning to believe in Am Yisrael, which also teaches us at the very onset of the book of Yoshua that all the people who lived in Canaan also had a choice, just like Rachav did, to do Shuba. Amazing. So why does this mean to you? Why is it so important to you? What this is so important to me is because um, the Gemara tells us that had it not been for the Jews to sin, we only would have had the five books of Torah and the book of Yoshua. And the book of Yoshua is essentially starting with this message of you're entering Eretz Israel and you can start afresh. And it doesn't matter what you did in the past and it doesn't matter how low you've fallen. The path is open. You just have to take that opportunity. I love that. Such a powerful message. So we're ready to go into your second piece. So my second piece, what I'm going to do here is I'm actually going to do 
source two, source three, and I'm even going to throw in a little piece of a source for it as well. I'm going to combine all of it um, in order to come out with a complete picture. So I'm going to talk about now mainly at Melachim Bet, chapter four, the story of Elisha and the Shunamit. But I'm also going to include in my presentation um, pieces that appear in Rev. Soloveitchik's 1956 essay called Kol Dodi Dofeik, um, My Beloved is Knocking, where much of um, the Rav's Zionistic outlook is presented in this essay referring to the nature of history and Jewish peoplehood. And to me personally, it's an extremely um, significant and very much influenced my world view. So I'm assuming that the story of the Shunamit is um, well known. Story, let's just give a little bit of background. Alicia is invited into the home of a woman who's known as the Shunamit. Um, and he blesses her with a child, which she was hesitant to receive. The child eventually dies. And this, this raises a fundamental question of why do bad things happen to good people? But the story demands a deeper reading to investigate the situation. And here I want to suggest another um, source, and that is Rev Samet. Rev Elchanan Samet has a book called Pirkei Elisha, which has been translated in English as well, which is a book dedicated to the chapters in Navi that discuss the activities of Elisha. And there he sees this story as a typical pattern that we have in Navi. If there's punishment, there has to be an sin. So therefore, if the child dies, then there must be a sin. But who sinned? And what is the sin? So according to Rabbi Samet, the Shunamit falls short in her responsibility because when we compare her to all the other biblical barren women, they all had sons who grew up to be important people. Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, Shimshon, Shmuel. These are all people who played important roles. And here she has this child. We don't even know his name. And he just, what does he do? The only thing he does is he goes out to the field, which reminds us, first of all, of Asa, but why isn't he in Talmud Torah? And therefore, because he doesn't become this wonderful persona, Rabbi Samet feels that his mother has sinned. Uh, he suggests that the miraculous nature of his birth should have changed the Shunamit, but she fails in this. And therefore, he's, his death is even, what, what causes his death? He goes out to the field and complains about his head. He probably dies of, uh, you know, uh, heat or something. It's a totally banal death because his existence has been completely unexciting. And this is where we turn to Koldo Dido Fake. The Rav explains that Judaism doesn't view a kindness that God does for human beings as unconditional without obligation. It requires something in return. Indeed, loving kindness emanates from the open, overflowing, generous hand of God, but it's not unlimited or unconditional. Such a gift is not absolute. God gives good and he expects us to do something in return. Miracles put a responsibility on the individuals who receive them. 
Miracles don't cost God anything, but he doesn't just give out gifts. God gives on condition. Man has to give back in some way, whether God grants us wealth, intelligence, honor. Man has to learn to use those gifts to make the world a better place. And if one does not use them properly, he's actually reneging on his responsibility to God. And therefore, the rough continues and he says, whatever God does for an individual or for the community requires certain actions of the beneficiary to make this world a, to use those divine gifts and make the world a better place. And so therefore, based on this view, God makes a miracle for the Shunamit. She does not raise the child and make the world a better place. And because there was no appreciation for the miracle, no joy, uh, nothing significant here. So therefore she fails in her responsibility and therefore the child dies. Now, we sort of ask ourselves, what would make a woman who's described as an Ishagadola fail in this way? And therefore, Reb Sabato vehemently disagrees. And he says, the sin here is not with the Shunamit, but really the guilty party here is Elisha. Because it's the first time in history that Navi takes on himself the granting of a child. And that's one of those keys that belongs to God. And all the other times, it's God sends the angel or God promises the child, not Anavi. The death of the child is to teach I. Elisha is taking God's place. As a result, there is a fault in the blessing, and it's sort of like ran out. It's almost as if the ch child is guaranteed to die, because if it was man-made, it can only be temporary in nature. There is a limit to the Navi's power. Be careful what you force God to do. And so the child dies as a punishment for Elisha, and when he is dead, the Navi admits not knowing that fact, and he has to go through some sort of repentance. Rip Samet finds fault in Elisha's granting the child to begin with. He was no stranger in the Shunamit's home. He should have consulted with the woman before granting her this wish. And if he was performing this miracle, he also should have prepared her for the event. If he brings the child into the world, he also could have been involved in bringing up the child and raising the child. So the responsibility lies with the Navi. Perhaps had the Navi been more involved, the child would have reached his potential. The miracle though, did not induce action. What does induce action? The tragedy. When the child dies, all of a sudden, the Shunamit takes action. And here the Rav in Koldo di Dofeg says, just as the good obligates man to perform deeds of a higher order and demands creative and innovative actions from the individual or the population, so does suffering. Suffering requires the repair of the soul and the cleansing of lines. If at times of God's favor and benefits, we are not often aroused to action, sometimes when bad things occur, we are. So the Rav is saying here that just as one should react when there are miracles, if we don't react when there are miracles, we're also supposed to react when there is suffering. And therefore, the um, Shunamit doesn't necessarily ask why the child has died, 
But now that he has died, she says, now what? How am I going to react to this tragedy? And as a matter of fact, the fascinating thing is that according to the Sephardic um, uh, Misora, they end the Haftarah before the child is even brought back to life. They end the chapter once the Shunamit takes this um, action. But the chapter continues, and we find Elisha praying and taking responsibility for the child. And so Elisha himself goes through the tshuva process. He admits that it's only through God, and God is in control of, any, of everything. And the Shunamit also goes through a tshuva process when he gives her back the live child. This time she does fall down and um, accept and realize that there was a miracle here. If we take a look at the end of the um, Rub's essay, the, the Rub talks about that there are six knocks that happened. And this is 1956, mind you, even before the Six Day War, which is so fascinating. He says that God is telling us, God is sending us a message, and we have to decide whether we're going to react to this message. So these messages are, according to the Rav, the establishment of the state of Israel by the nations of the world, the success of the Israeli army. And now that we're coming to Hanukkah, it's the Rabim, Biyad, Matim, Rab, Matim Biyad Rabim, Tehorim, Tmeim, Biyad Tehorim. It's Jewish self-awareness, theology that the Jews are the chosen ones and not as the Christians had been trying to say that God had rejected them. It's the Baal Tshuva movement, which was really just, just starting in 1956. The fact that Jewish blood is not cheap. And sixth, the Kibbutz Goliot. And that was even before the Iron Curtain fell. And now we've reached that point where Jews from all over the earth can really return to the land of Israel. And what I want to, the reason I find this chapter of the Shunamit to be so inspirational is because of the connection to the Kol Dodi Dofeik, as well as the many years that Israel and the Jewish people seem to be dead with no possibility of revival. Yet, the dead son was able to come back to life. And Israel now flourishes, breathes, and evil excels amongst the nations of the world. Once we experience that miracle, we cannot take it for granted. It puts a responsibility on us. In order, we have to fight for its survival. We have to help it flourish. We have responsibility to do something with this gift of God. And that's just what the Navi Yecheskel tells us in chapter 37, in the prophecy of the dry bones. Yecheskel says to the dry bones, therefore prophecy and say to them, thus says the Lord your God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, O my people, and I will bring you to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord and I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of the graves of my people. And I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your land and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and performed it, says the Lord. Wow, really, really um, amazing. And I love the connection between the Rob and that you're able to take the text and take what the Rav says and put them together. It, it's it's really amazing. Um, I love the Rav, so and I love Kodri Dovak, it's one of my favorite Svarim. 
so to really learn the Tanakh and the text and connect it, it's really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing. So thank you so much for coming on today and sharing such inspiring and amazing Torah with us. And uh, thank you for organizing such a wonderful um, podcast and for being able to be to use new technology to spread Torah to all the Anglo communities. And may Hashem grant you much success and ability to continue doing this for many, many years. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.